welcome to the New Mexico News Podcast, headlines and stories from the land of enchantment. Brought to you by KRQE. Here's Chris McKee and Gabrielle Burkhart. Crime in Albuquerque is taking a national focus this summer, particularly in recent weeks. We reported in part on the initial fervor over Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham's executive order declaring gun violence a public health emergency. That led to her signing a public health order looking to ban open and concealed carry in Bernalillo County. And that sparked a lot of debate and uproar over the constitutionality of the order. That portion of the public health order has since been blocked by a federal court judge who issued a temporary restraining order preventing its enforcement, ultimately siding with attorneys who challenged the order's legality. And since then, the governor revised her public health order, narrowing her suspension on the right to carry guns to city parks and playgrounds. But behind all of these debates about the public health order, Albuquerque is still dealing with a major crime problem. Yeah, regardless of your view on the governor's decisions today, we're looking more into what's led up to this moment in time. That is a series of gun crimes that have made headline after headline. Unfortunately, what we've learned is uh, this was not a road rage incident. You know, initially we get information and that information sometimes changes during the course of investigation. This was a case of mistaken identity. Uh, The individuals who were arrested were involved in a dispute with others at Isotope Stadium. The individuals that they were involved in a dispute with drove a white four-door Dodge pickup truck. Albuquerque Police Chief Harold Medina announced this past week detectives found and arrested three people connected to the shooting death of 11-year-old Froilan Villegas who was leaving Isotopes Park with his family after a baseball game. His 23-year-old cousin was also seriously injured. That shooting was initially thought to be sparked by road rage, where at least 17 rounds were fired into the victim's family truck. Police have now arrested three suspects. You don't have to be willing to say that they're drug dealers. Let's call it you don't carry 100,000 pills if you're not a drug dealer. 22-year-old Jose Romero, 21-year-old Nathan Garley, and 26-year-old Daniel Gomez. Garley was found with 22 pounds of fentanyl in his car, and investigators say the intended victim the day of the shooting was a rival gang. And it is our belief that these cowards mixed up the two vehicles and shot into the wrong vehicle taking the life of a young man. There are a series of other gun crimes where police have caught people involved. One of the common denominators in some of the shootings this summer that we're noticing is just how young the suspects are. Over a series of different cases in recent months, more than a dozen teenagers have been charged with murder in Bernalillo County. One of the most recent cases involved an ongoing dispute between a group of teens that investigators say resulted in a drive-by shooting at a mobile home park. During that drive-by shooting, a five-year-old girl, Galilea Samaniego, was caught in the crossfire. She was staying at a home with her sisters, sleeping in bed, when a bullet hit her in her head, killing her instantly. A total of five teens have been charged in that case so far. And the topic of teens involved in violent crime is one we've heard city and state leaders talk about before. We want to explore it deeper here on the podcast today. So joining us in studio is a returning guest, Albuquerque Police Chief Harold Medina. Chief, thanks for being here. No, thanks for having me here and good morning. 
Good morning. And and again, thank you. We appreciate you joining us here. We know you're very familiar with what's happening. We've seen you at numerous news conferences even this year. And each time I think we hear sort of a common theme and something that I think everyone can agree with, right? Just how senseless this loss of life really is. And a lot of these victims in the killings have also been young themselves. So just to start with that, what has this year been like for you seeing some of these cases? You know, first of all, just to the families that have been involved, uh, the five-year-old uh, out at the trailer park, the the child that was leaving Isotope Stadium. And this morning, unfortunately, we had another incident and we're just releasing information now and we'll update the public a little bit more later today, but we had another young child who was struck by gunfire. We're learning more about the shooting Wednesday night that left a seven-year-old boy in critical condition. Last night, APD charged Devana Chavez with child abuse resulting in great bodily harm and trafficking a controlled substance. 27-year-old Chavez told detectives that her boyfriend, Mercarian Rogers, got violent with her during an argument. She says she shot Rogers in the leg during the altercation, but the bullet passed through his leg and struck her son in the head. Detectives also found a large amount of illegal drugs and evidence of drug trafficking, as well as more than $10,000 in cash. At last check, the boy is still in critical condition. And it's very difficult. Uh, it's very difficult on our officers. We get them behavioral sciences out right away and, and make sure that they are able to talk to somebody. Uh, most of them have kids, but it's just been very disappointing to see the senselessness in some of these shootings and the lives that are changed on the sides of the victims. And I've recently met with, I've met with victims, families over the course of my time as chief. And I think there's a lot of prayers for those families, but these offenders that are so young, in a sense also that their lives are changed forever, their family lives are changed forever. And it makes you ask the question, what has gone so wrong with us as a society that we're seeing such a youthness in some of the offenders of some of the most violent crime in the city right now. And I mean, and it goes on when we talked about those two cases, but let's not forget we had a, a young woman who was trying to recover her vehicle that was killed by a 13 year old. So yeah. Sydney Wilson, Sydney Wilson and that 13 year old, you know, uh, unfortunately at one point wanted to be an officer, spent time with the Albuquerque police department and, was an officer for the day with us. And something happened over the last four years that took them from that point to the point of where they are now in jail charged with murder. Wow. Chief, are you able to give us an update of maybe how many cases and suspects do you know of that involve teens facing murder charges right now? You know, we don't, I don't have the exact number with me, you know, uh, although it may seem as if they're a great, great number, they've just caught the headlines very well. But historically, over last year and the years before, our biggest group of offenders uh, generally are like from 25 to 35 years old. But we are seeing more and more in the last year of offenders under the age of 20, which is starting to go in line with a lot of national trends, which brings this to such a concern for us because we'd like to put a stop to it before it gets out of control. Has any specific one of these cases stood out to you? And if so, why? The five-year-old killed at the trailer park really stood out in my mind because this was somebody that was not residing in the home. That was just somebody visiting. The intended victim in that case 
you know, freely traded and left that room because, you know, there's fear and there's such a history amongst that group and they're related to a lot of other major incidents within the city. So that one really stood out because of the innocence of the victim and the situation as a whole. I mean, Isotope Stadium really sticks out. We all have been to Isotope Stadium. We've all left there with our family. But the third one that sticks out in my mind that I don't think people think about is when we had the teenager kill the other teenager over the feud of the firearm, which was loosely related to the incident where the five-year-old was killed. That incident is just shocking that we have people that age selling firearms and converting firearms to machine guns because uh, that firearm did have a, a machine gun conversion. So that one just really shocks me on the sense of how easy it is for minors to obtain firearms in this community and now to turn them into a machine gun. It did involve uh, kids from northwest part of Albuquerque and the homicide occurred off of Carlisle and uh, I-40. This, this is a really broad question. I wanted to ask, you know, what do you think is behind this? Is it a gun access issue? Is it a young people these days type problem? Maybe is it social media that leads to just the more immediacy of, of beef and feuds that can spiral out of control? Do you see any particular driving force with teen crime? I think the most important thing we need to remember is that there is no one thing that has led us to this point. And it's a variety of multiple things that have occurred that led us to this point. And that's why in finding a solution to this, we're going to have to have a very multi-pronged approach that includes resources outside of police. And one of the first things is that I think has happened is, and this even is happening in the adult system, the lack of accountability and the feeling by the criminal element that nothing is going to happen because this state is soft on crime. And I think that's something that definitely needs to change. Years ago, 2010 timeframe, I revamped and brought the bait car program to Albuquerque. And if you think of some of those early successes with that program, the biggest thing they taught us in the school for that class was that you had to have a big media portion to it, advertise it because your biggest success was going to be a deterrence because they felt that there were bait cars potentially all over the place and stealing one was going to get you apprehended. And we were very successful. I think we were even more successful back then at advertising it than we are now. But the key part was the deterrence. And I think in so many ways, so many changes to the system, whether it's not being able to book juveniles, the sense that people are consistently involved in a revolving door with the criminal justice system, uh, the fact that we're short officers and we don't have as many officers as we had to, all these reasons are really lending into the lack of accountability and the fact that people think they could get away with crime, along with social media and feuds escalating on social media. You talked about right at the beginning of your answer, the idea of, of having more resources and more programs to sort of address what is a, a broad issue. The VIP program has been brought up over the last several years. Part of the Keller administration, I know, has been a big part of bringing that up. It's gotten federal grant funding for it. It's something that the department continues. And the idea, as I understand it, is you know putting people in a place where they can intervene to sort of stop the retaliation and blowback that happens after a lot of these crimes. 
And just for our listeners, the, the VIP program stands for Violence Intervention Program, correct? Yes. Okay. And yeah, we have an episode about that we can link to in the show notes. Obviously, we still hear about these crimes continuing, but do you see the VIP program as a component of maybe successfully helping reduce things still? Yes. I think that it's been a difficult time. I think there's still been a lot of learning. Uh, we've actually revamped uh, the VIP program in recent months. I made some recommendations to the department that oversees it. And one of the things we do have is we do have a school-based VIP at West Mesa High School. Because of the incidents that we've had out there, we're looking to expand that. But we're also looking to expand traditional VIP to include more juveniles. And we actually got a federal grant last year through the federal government. And what we're doing with it is we're taking one of the priority areas is improving our ability to utilize VIP on juveniles. And uh, we've just asked them to focus some of the shift on VIP more towards juveniles and towards repeat offenders who are in the, the jail and, and not so much those that are just out in the community. So VIP is definitely one of many answers going forward. But I also think that we need to look at our educational process and our legislature. And I've recommended to them in the past that you know, when we were in school, we all probably got home ec. That was one of the classes we took. They taught us how to do basic things that would help us in life. Well, one of those basic things that kids need nowadays is how to mediate and how to avoid conflict with others. And I hope that our legislatures hear that that is needed in our school. It's the number one thing that kids could use and teaching kids to understand and resolve things without mass conflict would be nothing but beneficial to everybody in the community and it would help them uh, for the entire lifetime. So I hope that they could bring forward some type of legislation that really carves out a good program from elementary school through high school on how to deal with conflict and, and how conflict is dealt with in the schools. Chief, have you, you mentioned you've spoken to some families that are touched by some of these cases, whether it be maybe suspects' families or victims' families. What have you heard from them? Frustration. Uh, you know, it's very apparent that when you look, I mean, I saw an Albuquerque Journal article this past week, and it was shocking. If you read it, one of the biggest things that I saw out of that was the fact that the shortage of police officers only accounted for what the public felt was 8% of the problem. The biggest portions had to do with the criminal justice system. And when you take all those portions about the criminal justice system, the lack of accountability and add them up along with poverty, that's like 60% of what the public feels is going wrong. And I don't think our state legislators are hearing, not all of them. I think there's a vast majority that are not hearing that the public wants change. And there are elected officials and they need to make some changes that are tough on violent criminals, keeps violent criminals in jail, but we have to carve out funding for social service providers. We have to increase our ability to provide substance abuse counseling, and we have to increase our ability to give resources to those that are going through mental health crisis. And, you know, th this is the second year I'm hearing record-breaking funds available for the state legislature and I hope that they listen to some of the recommendations that we're making through the mayor's MCI process and they bring those resources to the table. You mentioned a lot of these potential solutions. 
Do you see something like this, though, that the broader problem is something that gets worse before it gets better? And what is your hope for this legislative session upcoming? You know, I, I think there's some hope in the sense that I think, I hope that both sides can come to the middle to an agreement on certain topics. Uh, we know firearms are a big issue within the community. We know that we have had several incidents where individuals use firearms and kill individuals. We need harsh penalties, harsher than we have now for some of these crimes. We also need enough prosecutors. We need the courts to have enough judges. We need to move these cases through the system. So along with the mental health resources, the resources for individuals going through mental health crisis, the jail needs to be fully functional and it should not take my officers up to five hours to have to book somebody. Could you imagine how demoralizing that is for an officer to think that they are arresting somebody and it's going to take them five hours before they're done standing there with that individual amongst a ton of other prisoners who are rowdy, who are uncooperative, not the best crowd to be around as an officer. And you're sitting there just waiting because a medical provider doesn't have the time to get through them or they have some other medical emergency in the jail or the jail simply doing an inmate count and the front door is locked while they do their inmate count and the police cars are stacking out up outside of a facility. So I think there's a lot of places that they need to devote resources, whether it's the detention center or the courts, the judges, they need more judges, uh, they need more resources and the DA's office. So I hope that they invest in the other parts of the criminal justice system. I'm probably the only chief who's not asking for so much funding for their own and forgetting everybody, I think the funding needs to be spread out. And we know with certain crimes to include murder, teenagers in New Mexico are looking at a possibility of being tried as an adult in court. Depending on how a judge decides, a sentence for a conviction could be just the same as adults, meaning a teen could face life in prison for murder. At the same time, though, there was a legislative shift in the last session addressing this very issue, saying juveniles who've been sentenced to life in prison are now allowed to get a shot at parole, as in there's no more guaranteed life sentence for juveniles. So with that in mind, when we think about penalties, it does seem like there's some pushback against tougher penalties for juveniles, at least from some lawmakers. Do you see tougher penalties for teens as being a necessary part of addressing this problem, though? You know, I hear a lot of people talk about their concern about people being incarcerated for extended periods, juveniles, adults, and I hear them brag about the successes we have. Like, you know, we no longer have such a high jail population. We no longer are, you know, sentencing juveniles to prison for the rest of their life. We're very humane in the way we do that. It's very progressive, a lot of the things we're doing. But I really ask the public this question. Do you look outside and walk through our city every day and feel that all these things that people are bragging about that our improvements are working? I think that's where the common sense of every citizen needs to come back we needed to get our legislators to understand that they're there to serve the will of the people, not their personal beliefs. And we need to make sure that they understand the people of Albuquerque don't feel these prog these processes are working. And I'm sorry, but I'm a tough on crime person. And there's some crimes that uh, necessitate that an individual be dealt with forever. 
And it's in terms of, of deterrence. I mean, if, if kids think that this is only going to affect me till I'm 25, 30, 35 years old, that's not a deterrence. It's not the rest of their life. So yes, I think there are some cases where juveniles uh, should not have the ability to get out of case. And when you murder somebody, I don't care how old you are, you chose to pick up a firearm. And I think a nine-year-old would know murder is not right. We know IPD has internal check-ins with homicide detectives and gunshot reports as well, pretty regularly. What kind of insight are you guys gaining from these meetings? And, and maybe can you give us a glimpse of, of what officers are doing to tackle the issue? You know, one of the things that we've done as a department is we've worked really, really hard to break down the silos within APD. That was the biggest problem that I saw during the whole course of my career. There are numerous times as a field officer, we were frustrated because we didn't know there was a certain type of investigation. Somebody was a suspect in something and we pick them up and let them go. And then they're like, oh, what did they say? We're actually looking at them in this. So what we do is we do have a lot of conversations and we have done a lot of training for our detectives and we've created a team environment. I mean, for the first time, we have an accountability process, Duke City Stat, where commanders come in and they're accountable for their area, no matter what is involved. And the best example of that is the homicide commander is expected to communicate and work with the area commanders about the cases in their area. And uh, I think that as we increase our communications, uh, we increase our knowledge and we become a better team. We continue to see the improvements. I have a lot of confidence in our homicide team. They've shown time and time again when they're under a national spotlight that they could perform. And I think that's just a byproduct of the communication and the understanding and the working together that they're having. Chief, we recently saw, we were talking about this before we started recording, but we recently saw some surveillance video, you know, from a Southeast Albuquerque apartment complex. Dramatic video tonight of a dangerous shootout in Southeast Albuquerque. A man watching TV with his son had to hit the ground when bullets started flying. It shows a car driving up, two people get out, start shooting at another parked car. Someone in that car then returns fire, and there's a gunfight with more than a dozen shots, bullets going through an apartment window nearby. This was in the middle of an afternoon on a Saturday. The cars take off before police arrive, and we know at least one of those cars was stopped, and a 19-year-old who was shot was charged in the shooting. But, you know, this is scary stuff to see and hear about, especially, you know, if you have kids, you think about youth being involved in violent crime. We also, you know, heard the governor in some of her messages say, I can't guarantee your safety. No one right now in New Mexico, and particularly in Albuquerque, is safe in a movie theater, at a park, at a school, at a grocery store, at an isotopes game, at the university, at the grocery store, I think I said, getting your prescriptions at work. You just aren't safe. I can't guarantee it. And neither can the men and the women who put on a uniform every day. What would your message, I guess, be to the people in the community who just feel scared or maybe do think that law enforcement should be doing more? Because it seems like a lot of these criminals who are brazen aren't worried about consequences. You know, I think that uh, let's break that down. Uh, let's talk first about the shooting in broad daylight. In 1996, it would probably be about 
February, March of 1996, I actually gave my first media soundbite as a patrol officer. I was the low person on the totem pole and I had to talk to the media about a shooting that had occurred midday at a location off of Central, Tramway Central area. And I gave my first media bite on first shooting. And during the course of the next few weeks, as I worked Southeast days, we investigated several other shootings. Back then, there were just as many shootings. There's just as many violence in the middle of the day, but it wasn't magnified the way it is today. Today, there is so much surveillance that it's made it real for the community and it drives the sense of fear. And, and we have to look, there is way without a doubt too much crime, but our officers are working harder and harder every day. When I took over as chief, it's no secret. Everybody felt like the cops were afraid to do their job. Everybody in this community heard it. The officers themselves said it. And I think to where we are today, three years ago, this department gave 24,000 traffic citations. This year, we're on pace for 85,000. We had a clearance rate, 56% or so, for homicides. This year, we're at 95%. We've increased felony warrants being cleared this year. We have about a 35% increase. Don't quote me on that one, but I think it's close to there. And we're seeing increases across the board in all the other areas. There's only so much law enforcement can do. That's why we've said over and over over the past three years, we need a functional criminal justice system. And the first thing I want to say is I'm going to defend first the DA's office. They have limited resources and with their limited resources and their ability to take every single case, there's always going to be cases dismissed. We know the courts had a Arnold tool that more and more clarifications are coming out about it. Well, think about it. They didn't have those clarifications before. There wasn't good guidance on it before. So I don't want to blame any part of the criminal justice system. I think everybody's in a learning process. But every part of the criminal justice system has to be working in order for us to have a safe community. And this is one bold prediction I've always made. When the jail had an average population of about 1,900 people, we had some of the lowest crime rates we could see in the city. The jail population has gone up from about 1,200 to about 1,500 this year. And look at our numbers this year, how they're going down. You put me an average jail population of 2,000, and I will almost guarantee we will have a safe city. It's a matter of keeping the right people in jail. They're committing 85% of the crime, and I honestly don't think it's more than 500 people out in the community right now. One of the things that I know stands in the way of having more people in the jail is the McClendon lawsuit settlement, right? That was a long time coming where finally, I think it was around 2015 or 16, a a settlement got released or finally published. Obviously, that lawsuit came as MDC was overcrowded and didn't have enough resources to deal with the population. Um, So there are certain things, right, that the county is somewhat bound to as a result of that. Do you think, though, we can get to that point, as you had mentioned, you know, having that many people in jail while that sort of settlement is in place. I know, again, that's a county issue and you're the police chief. You guys don't manage or run the jail. So you're sort of hands off from it a little bit. But the work you do very much relies on the what they can do at MDC. So two things is I could be a great voice and advocate for the jail to get the resources they need. And this is actually a conversation that came up when we met with the governor when she made her announcement. 
my recommendation was very simple. The jail is the biggest mental health facility we have in the state. The jail is the biggest substance abuse facility we have at the state. Let's invest in the resources I spoke about for mental health and substance abuse. Let's invest those resources and bring them to the first place that is already up. We don't need to build a facility. Let's fund the resources at MDC that we need in order for people to start getting treatment there. And I think the other thing we have to do is we have to think bold. I've always been very fair about saying violent people should sit in jail and others need to get the treatment they need. We have to think of a new process and we can't be afraid of that. The fact that we've never done it before. And my recommendation has been very simple. When we arrest somebody for a felony crime, a juvenile, an adult, and they're sitting in the backseat of our police car, there is no time more during the course of my career that I've seen an individual who wants help. There at that moment in time, they've recognized they're about to go to jail and their life has changed and they need to make a change in their life. What if we imagined and actually worked towards a system where that person who has a drug problem, a nonviolent history, we're able to transport them to immediately put them into a drug treatment facility to fight the underlying cause and not to jail. I think when our state and our leadership in certain areas really recognize that that is the answer or somewhere a system of that type is the answer and they start working on building that system, we will see a very safe city. We have to get people to the resources when they're asking for them and not be at the point where we're waiting weeks for a bed to open up somewhere. We, anybody who's dealt with drug addicts knows that window is extremely small and we have to be able to accommodate them when they're ready to go get help. And there's no time better than when officers arrest them and officers see it. We see it all the time. I saw it during the course of my career where somebody in the backseat is at the point where they want help three, four days later when they've already been in jail, They've already gotten their fix. They're feeling normal again. They've normalized in jail. They're not ready for treatment anymore. It's too late. It's too late. We missed that window. You mentioned the governor's order. We know that several of the components of it outside of the issues with the open and concealed carry, some of those components were directed towards treatment, essentially. One of them being, you know, when somebody goes and seeks treatment, 24 hours, getting them placed in a facility, immediately essentially was the idea behind at least a component of that health order with the governor's announcements in line. You were there during the first announcement of the public health order. Do you feel that anything in her orders has helped this situation since? You know, the us being able to book juveniles. And I said it that day, I said, there are portions we agree with. There's portions we don't agree with. But the first one I pointed out was the fact that we're able to now book juveniles uh, without getting the permission from from uh, juvenile probation and parole. So I thought that was something that worked quickly and helped. I, I do know also they reached out to me yesterday and advised that funding in, for overtime would be arriving to the city rather quickly and that if I had any other big asks to send them up. So uh, I think the funding portion is going to be key for us to be able to get additional officers out there on specific programs to address some of the issues that we see, whether it's 
dealing with individuals on Central and the drug activity that's occurring there or making sure that we have enough resources at some type of event to make sure that nothing happens. So I think there are a few things that I think are working already. And I think the concepts, if she could bring those to realization, would be wonderful. The fact that we could get somebody into uh, somewhere to get the resources needed within 24 hours goes right along in line with what I'm talking about. I want to just have a little bit of this message, I think, to also speak to parents who have children, because I know you mentioned education and maybe even, you know, having this be kind of like a home ec class, right? Teaching children and youth how to resolve conflicts without getting to violence. Is there conversations that you would recommend, you know, parents having with their kids who are going to school and, you know, may or may not be exposed to conflicts like this? You know, I think the one thing is parents need to recognize that times have changed since we were kids. I remember I have a relative that uh, was being picked on at school. And the recommendation to the parents was, you go defend yourself and you fight back. And I think there's still a lot of parents who that may come out of their mouth, not realizing the game has changed. So parents have to be very cautious of the recommendations and they have to rely on the system, the legal system, the school system to help their kids during these conflict moments. And I think one of the best things they could also, above giving good advice, is they need to create that sense of trust where their kids are able to come to them and talk to them. Uh, You know, and that's something that we all probably didn't have. I uh, had the most loving parents in the world, but a lot of times I didn't go tell them what my problems were. So we need to create an environment where kids feel very comfortable alerting their parents to what's going on so the parents can help them navigate through the process because things have changed so greatly. The other thing is, you know, recommendations to kids in junior high, high school. Just remember the friends that you associate with are going to carry you in a certain direction. And if you see that your friends are starting to go in another direction, you really need to sit and think of what you want in life and recognize that There is more to life than living today. And I think that's a lot of things that kids lose is they've lost that hope of the future. It feels like more now than ever, this is a really serious moment, if you will. And that's not to deride, you know, the things that have happened over the last couple of years. Obviously, people, I think, have been pretty serious about crime. You've seen it talked about on a lot of different fronts, but it it does feel like now more than ever, we're at a, a really serious moment where people are talking about solutions and ideas. Do you feel that way? You know what? I think one of the things that the mayor did well several years ago is they brought in the Metro Crime Initiative. And if you think of the first announcement, we knew that we wouldn't get everything done that we wanted off the first meeting, but it's really opened the doors to communication like I've never seen before. And that's one thing that I'll say is occurring now better than ever is that communication and the ability to pick up the phone. For the first time in a long time in my career, I feel very comfortable picking up the phone and calling the sheriff and saying, hey, how can we do something together? How can we work something? A great relationship with New Mexico State Police, whether it was Tim Johnson or now Troy, pick up the phone and I feel comfortable and uh, we could do something together. I think that there's other processes, uh, whether it's our relationships with the county, relationship with the federal government, relationship with our federal partners. I think that relationship really shined during the shootings within the Muslim community. So yes, without a doubt, I feel that we are communicating and working better as a community than ever. 
And uh, the last portion, we just need to get in line and I'm going to take another shot at them and they're probably going to be upset. I want to say not all of them because some of them are really good. I think our state legislature needs to just really become united to find solutions and not play political games. Because I sit there and I watch it and it's just sometimes disgusting how something will get stuck in one of the subcommittees and all of a sudden it will move as soon as somebody has a super deal done that makes them look good. Hmm. Chief, is there anything else that you want to add that we didn't ask you about directly? No, I just want to assure the public, you know, we talked a little bit about it. The number one thing is our officers are working hard. They're motivated. You look at our department, it's a world of difference from a few years ago. We talked about some of the successes. We're seeing bigger academy classes. They're paid well. We're seeing big, bigger lateral classes. They're working. I think the other day I saw that they had doubled the amount of uh, criminal trespass citations this year, which is a big issue with individuals who have individuals trespassing on their business and their property. So the officers are out there working hard every day. The statistics show they're working hard every day. They're doing it constitutionally. We're doing better than ever with DOJ. We're getting ready to be as transparent as usual as always. We're going to be releasing more information on the first six months of our officer-involved shootings. But we need help. We need the rest of the system to be funded and work the way we're working right now. And part of that is giving them the right resources. But we also need some minor adjustments in our laws. And I really urge the state legislature to come together, find some middle ground, stop playing games so that you have the biggest crime package ever, get things passed that are actually meaningful, and listen to the experts in the state. I would love for any of them to come sit, as as many have. I'd love others to come sit and actually hear from the experts firsthand what we're seeing every day and where our struggles are. Thank you, Chief Medina. We appreciate your time. No, thank you for having me here this morning. You guys take care. Thanks again to Chief Harold Medina for speaking to us today. We understand and and certainly know, I think, going into this, this is a really broad problem. There's not really an immediate silver bullet solution or really a problem that one singular agency can fix. I think this chief obviously spoke to that, but hopefully at least this conversation is at least a little bit enlightening to the idea of how one pillar of the criminal justice system sees the issue. As of this recording, there have been 17 murder suspects this year in Albuquerque, ages 19 and under. One trend APD stats show that's been pretty consistent lately is that most murder cases that involve multiple suspects also tend to involve teens. For added context, APD usually defines juveniles as ages 17 and under. By that count, there have been nine juvenile murder suspects this year in Albuquerque. If there is a podcast topic or someone you'd like to hear from on our podcast, feel free to reach out. I'm gabrielle.burkhart at krqe.com via email and gburknm on social media. I'm Chris.mckee at krqe.com, also at chrismckee TV. Thanks for listening.